You can be seated. You know, there are some days where you just never know what you're going to happen, what you're going to see, and what's going to happen. I want to welcome you today. Um, Thanksgiving this week, right? Well, I have the privilege, and uh, it's it's very unique what's about to happen here today. Um, thank you. How many of you like turkey? Yeah. How many of you like tofurkey? <laughs> Brad Jansen? Um, to Durkins? I mean, the list goes on. If it's Thanksgiving, I usually like it, except for sweet potatoes. I don't, it's never been a thing. But did you know in the hierarchy of turkeyhood, there's a final form? Like what all turkeys hope to grow up and become? And some, I didn't even know about this until this week, but somebody is, I've had this opportunity. I have under this wrap something called a Peruvian long-necked turkey. It is the rarest turkey in the entire planet. The Peruvian long-necked turkey is the most expensive turkey on the planet. What's under here is the Rolls-Royce of turkeys, the caviar, the Japanese Wagyu beef of turkeys. This is the one turkey to rule them all. And I'm going to ruin all Thanksgivings from now on because I am going to actually have the chance to taste this turkey. This was prepared for us today. And what sets this turkey apart, oh, is that this is an organic, free-range turkey, which a lot of things are. Um, there you go, Dad. So, someday the children do repay the parents. You know, excuse me. This is an organic, free-range turkey. It, what sets it apart, apparently, is in Peru, the, in the forest, the Peruvian long-necked turkey grows. And it, it, it's all throughout the forest. They've quarantined the predators so that it can grow unhindered. And it feeds on the hazelnuts that fall from the trees. And you can't even, or you shouldn't ever, smoke a Peruvian long-necked turkey because it already has a smoky flavor from the nuts, a nuttiness. And it also feeds on the sweet cherries that fall and are on the ground of the jungle. It eats the sweet cherries and the hazelnuts, so it has a sweet, almost slight cherry flavor. Have I mentioned how much this would cost in a restaurant? Have you ever seen this on the menu? Yeah, this is above the lava, the surf and turf. This is above all the, this, this right here is a very rare thing. And, and with it, we have some cranberry sauce that actually they have paired with this perfectly. It comes with the, the Peruvian long neck turkey. It's made with some of the cherry juice from Peru, the Peruvian forest, along with these hand-picked, they assured us, hand-picked, each berry hand-picked, um, and made into a cranberry sauce. And so today, there are perks to my job. <laughs> so let's just, just so everybody can get a, a nice look at it and, and to get the smell going of the Peruvian long neck turkey. Anybody ever had this? Seriously, anybody ever had a Peruvian long neck turkey? Isn't that crazy? Okay. I know there's probably a way you should do this, and that's how I'm going to do it, right there. Oh. They say that because of the density of the meat, by how it's raised, it retains most of its moisture. Okay. Oh, yes. I'm, I'm butchering the Peruvian long neck turkey, Charlie. Now, I think lead pastor Charlie Hill should have the first bite. You're good? You've had Peruvian long neck turkey before? Every, every, every Thanksgiving. You ever heard of it before today? 
Now, Charlie. Are you gonna feed me? Oh, I'm not gonna feed you. No, I want you to grab that fork. <laughs> I will if you'd want me to. <laughs> take, take, take the fork. Now, describe for me. Do you taste the nuttiness and the sweetness of the cherries? Oh my gosh! <laughs> oh my gosh! There we go. We have an oh my. It, Oh, yes, it, it is very good. You can put that fork right there. Um, you know, now it's my turn. It tastes like, it, it tastes like Peru? Yeah. Excuse me. Hey, just uh, turn to your neighbor and just give me a second. No. That is good. You can taste the cherry in there. And you can taste a little bit of the nuttiness. Who would like a bite of this? You know, and, and I have to say, honestly, honestly, if you're in here and you're a vegetarian or a vegan, I know this just disgusts you. We tried to get Peruvian to tofu, and they, it didn't feed on any nuts, and so it just tasted like tofu. Let's see. This is the most, that's the most unique turkey I've ever had the privilege of taking a bite of. Who in here, let me see, Carrie, it's your last week here, right? Then you go back to Florida. Come here, buddy. I want you to have a, the privilege. You got to get some of that in there and some of that. I'm not going to feed you either. There you go, sir. There you go. You take it. Mm. Now tell me, do you taste the nuttiness in there and a little bit of the cherry? I mean, that, that, you can have, that's, a, that's a piece of turkey right there, isn't it? How about, let's see. Doug, you don't look like you want any turkey. Let's see. Jay Fowler, I know you don't. Would you like a bite of this? She raised her hand. Okay. The Peru. Now, now this right here, again, you, can, you can't. This is your first time you've ever been here? Oh, I'm sorry. Oh, I'm kidding. I'm kidding. Of course. What's your name? I don't know if I should tell you. You don't have to tell me. But here is a bite of the most exquisite, unique turkey on the planet. No, ma'am. Mm, now let that just roll around. Oh, I think that you're wanting a bite as well, aren't you? Okay, I only have one more after this to give out. Let's see. There you go. Thank you. Absolutely. The Peruvian long neck turkey. Now, we have one more fork that has been unused. Everyone's pointing to one person over here. Sir, could you come here, please? <laughs> What's your name? Brian? I want to give you the biggest piece. How about that? Is that okay? Sure. Now this right here. This is going to ruin. Who makes your turkey at your house? My mom. I'm so sorry. She has <laughs> Take that bite and just imagine that that's not what moms will taste like at all. Thank you, Brian. You can have us. Was that good? Oh, my goodness. The Peruvian long neck turkey. I would give more, but I don't have any more forks. They're all, their forks are all dirty, and so I don't want to contaminate. Oh, guys, can I just park this right here? <laughs> you know, it's amazing. The Peruvian long neck turkey, who would have thought such a thing? And, and who would have thought in a church that we would bring up just fine dining and tasting? That right there is the most unique experience. And how many of you right now wish you had a bite? Anyone? Should I just forget this and, and do that? <laughs> Oh, you know what? What's amazing is I was reading about it. 
That is a, it's still lingering, it's still good. Um, that's a taste that few on this planet will ever get to take. Like, that is a truly unique experience. And, and what a cool opportunity for those of you, for those, what, five of us, maybe six? What a cool moment. You got to try the Rolls Royce of Tur- It's all downhill from there, Brian. The rest of your life was in front of you, and now you'll be chasing after that flavor for the rest of your days. The saddest part about it, still got some of that nuttiness, is that um, only five got to try it. And it, even though it's an, an amazing experience, the rest of you just had to sit there hoping, hoping. This is why you never sit in the balcony. There's no way I'm chucking turkey into the balcony, okay? <laughs> I would have given you a bite. <laughs> throw the leg. Oh, if you are listening to this on podcast, you are missing all the fun. Um, and the truth is, the six of us, the five of us who had a bite, we could all come up on stage, go down the aisle with a microphone, and describe in detail, exquisite, savory detail, every part of it, and you still couldn't taste it. You couldn't taste I could explain every, every part of it, and you could still not taste it. And most of life is like this. Think of your favorite experience. What's your favorite moment, favorite flavor you've had? The five of you, I know what yours is now, but the rest of you, (laughs) the rest of you people who are just eating normal turkeys, think of the greatest food, the greatest experience, the greatest moment, the greatest vacation, the greatest thing you've seen, and no matter how much you describe it to somebody, no matter how much you you tell them in detail, they can't fully experience, they can't taste it like, like you got to. I can't bring you to taste this Peruvian long neck turkey based solely on my words. And the hard part about it is that, that no matter how hard we try, we, we cannot. But, but again, most of life is like this. And this is the greatest difference between an authentic moment and experience with Jesus and everything else the natural world has to offer. Everything this world has to offer, I can't lead you to taste it based on my experience. But there's something that happens when you experience the divine when you taste it, when it transforms you, and then you speak on it, and you act on it, and you live it out, and you invite others into it, guess what? They get a taste of the gospel. They get a taste of those divine moments. The gospel of Jesus is very unique in this ways. As it is lived out, other people get to taste it around you. Now, this term I just use, gospel, that's a good, it's almost southern word, right? The gospel. Usually it's, it's accompanied with a huge Bible and a suit. But today, the word gospel, listen, it means simply this. The gospel means good news. That's what it's translated into. The gospel of Jesus simply means the good news of Jesus. And we're going to talk about this today. See, good news by its very nature, you know what good news by its very nature is meant to happen? It's meant to be shared. Good news is easy to share. I remember when my wife got pregnant the first time, and, and she told me, here's the test, here's the other 19 tests, and I'm going out to buy three more boxes just to make sure. You know how that goes. Like, we, we, we invested in testing. And, uh, and so, they all said the same thing. And I, it's like 10 at night, and I'm ready to go on Facebook, I'm ready to go on, uh, open my Twitter account, I'm ready to go start uh, MySpace again, I'm gonna go do whatever it is, I'm gonna get the word out, we're gonna have a baby! 
Good news. It's so easy to share. It's hard not to share. And I said, when can we tell? She goes, not to the doctor visit. I was like, what time tomorrow is that? When is that? She goes, it's in 10 days. 10 days? You want me to just to not tell anybody that you have a, a, she goes, don't even say it. You can't say it out loud. What? I can't talk about it? 10 days? And, and apparently that's pretty short sometimes. I mean, you're like waiting weeks and, and months and sometimes you just never tell your parents. And then the baby just appears. But not the point. You know, good news, when it's good news, is easy to share. We want to share it. In fact, I want to give you an opportunity right now. Anybody in here pregnant and haven't told anybody? No, really. I just thought like on a random long shot, I would go like, hey, is anybody sitting on some really good news? Like you know you are and you're about to tell? Like this could be it. Anybody want to anybody raise your hand and say I'm pregnant and you really are? Gwen, where are you? Anyone? No? Yeah, no, no. Any, does, listen, when someone has good news, they can't not share. Anybody have any good, and I don't mean just good news. Anybody have any news that is like, oh, great news? Anybody, yeah, okay, we have a hand over here. Jenny, just, you have some great, okay, they're already cheering. So has she already been telling everybody good news? Yeah. Okay, well, tell us quickly what the, what is it? We're adopting. Oh! <laughs> Our babies are ours. We had a court panel, and they, pretty much everybody claims babies in trouble. Yes. It'll be officially Christmas. Christmas, that's awesome. What a present. Ah, oh, good news. Don't you love good news? And it's so easy to share. I mean, like, oh, it's so fun to share. Anybody else? Any, 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 and I don't mean like, hey, I had a good week. Anybody have anything just like, Ross Fowler, this wasn't, let's just keep going. I'm <laughs> Jay is finally submitting to your will. Is that what it is? <laughs> Stand up. <laughs> um, in May, I have been invited to go to Uganda with Operation Christmas Child. Yes! <laughs> so for Roslyn, for Roz, one second... She's dedicated her life to Operation Christmas Child, and she gets to pack them up and send them off, but they've invited her to be there to hand them to the children. Can you imagine? This is a dream realized. I only had one of these, but let's get, you, you, you got great news. Let's hear it. Uh, you made my wife's uh, anxiety just go crazy. We all pregnant. Oh! <laughs> yes! Yes! Good news! It's so easy and so fun to share. Yes! Yes! I love it when doctors say, we don't know what to say. We don't, I can't use the M word, but I'll just say there's no scientific. So, so I, I got to stop there. We, yeah, that is awesome. We have adoption. We have pregnancies. We have Uganda. We have healings. Man, good news is the best, isn't it? None of that. The, the, it's just organic. This, good news is the best. And it's so easy to share. You call people. You post it. You text it. You make a video. If it's truly good news, you want to share it. But something has happened to the good news of the gospel. Something's happened to the good news of the gospel. Because you see, I've noticed that we don't treat it often like it's good news. I, I just have to ask, how good is the good news of the gospel to us? How good is the good news of the gospel to you? You see, we've come to believe the gospel of Jesus is this, 
that we were bad. And he made us good. And we're trying to be good, gooder, and then we go to heaven. Sin made me bad. Jesus is making me good. I'm trying to be gooder. And then I get to go to heaven someday. And we believe that's the gospel. But I want to tell you, that is not the gospel of Jesus. You see, the truth of the matter is, sin doesn't make you bad. Sin makes you dead. And Jesus, he did not come and give his life to make you good. He came to bring you life. The reality of the gospel is that we were dead in our sin, spiritually dead apart from him, and he comes and brings us to life. He brings you to life and alive and a new, for a new purpose, a divine purpose, one larger than any career and even family. He brings you alive to the heavenly virtues of faith, hope, and love. He brings you to life so you do not have to remain dead in your shame and guilt and addiction and sins. The gospel is death to life. And this is why it drives me crazy when people say, I just don't have that good a testimony. You know, I haven't just sinned enough. I'm working on the sin part. I want to have a good testimony. No good testimony. You were dead. And now you're alive. Hallelujah. Praise Jesus. He brought you to spiritual life. He transformed your soul, your spirit. He's transforming and redeeming your entire life so that you can bring redemption. And someday, he will gather you together with the saints and we will all be in heaven. That's a pretty good testimony. Life to death. But something has happened to the good news. You see, the good news of Jesus is actually great news. It does for you what you cannot do for yourself. It gives you what you cannot earn for yourself. It redeems inside of you what you can't even restore yourself. And it gives you an eternal home you could never enter on your own. The gospel is alive and powerful. And what comes with it is transformative, life-changing, the gospel of Jesus is that we were dead in our sins and out of love he came to earth, lived a perfect life. He died and rose again. He conquered death. He broke the, the chains of sin. And so that us who, who choose faith in him, who place our faith in him, he cleanses our past. He gives us peace and purpose in our present and he gives us hope for the future. There's nothing like the gospel. It is the greatest news. But do we know do we act? Do we behave? Do we feel like it is good news? The thing about good news is you share it. You evangelize it. You know we're all evangelists for something? For a sports team or a hobby or restaurants, they have the best taco over there. They have the best pasta. Like evangelism just means speaking out or acting out in a way to convert, to change. So like uh, CrossFitters, they want to evangelize you to work out hard and wear silly socks. And, so, and then there's, <laughs> then there's a, the vegan, vegetarian, and any, any diet, or the paleo, or the this. Insert whatever it is, they're going to try to evangelize you to realize you should never, ever eat a legume the rest of your life. Okay? We all evangelize. There are times in my life where I've been a better evangelist for the Denver Broncos than for the Savior who gave his life for me. There have been times in my life where I was a better evangelist for a hobby than I was for the one who set me free. We all evangelize. We all speak and act out in order to, to help people see new light, see new way. We do this naturally. But when it comes to the gospel of Jesus, when it comes to the good news of Jesus, even in my life I've noticed it often gets bottled up and squelched down and set aside. So I have to ask myself when I ask you, how good 
How good is the good news in your life? Is it actually good news? Or is it old news? How good is the good news in your life? How good is the good news of the gospel? Many of us here claim to believe in Jesus, and we have appro- but do we, under, do, appropriately, do we appropriately understand the good news and talk about it, invite others into it, act on it, and live it? If it's good news, often we can't help but raise our hand when the opportunity comes and say something and celebrate. We're going to look at a text today. We've been in Luke, and Luke is, you know, New Testament stuff, and there's some things with Jesus that, that we love. We're going Old Testament today. I mean, like, deep Old Testament. You know, in the Old Testament, things happen, and you're like, whoa, what was that? We're going to do some what is that. We're going to go in the Old Testament in 2 Kings chapter 6 and 7. I'll, I have it here. I'm going to speak it. You can follow along if you'd like to in your worship center Bible. 2 Kings is a book of history in the Old Testament. It follows around some prophets, and here we are following around the prophet Elisha in his ministry. He is powerful in word and deed. He is feared and respected by, by Israel and the nations around. They tr- constantly try to attack Israel, and, and Elisha thwarts those attacks. And so in chapter 6, verse 24, 2 Kings, we read this. Sometime later, Ben-Hadad, king of Aram, mobilized his entire army and marched up, and laid siege to Samaria. The king of Aram, which is Syria, named, his name was Ben-Hadad, lays siege to the city of Samaria, the capital of northern Israel, the northern kingdom of Israel. So let me refresh you really quick on what a siege is. I know um, any of you history teachers in here, you probably know this, but a siege is something that we don't have much of these days. It's a very ugly tactic if you're the one being besieged. If you're, on the, if you're on the other side, it's actually a way you could take over a town or a fortress without any bloodshed. When you lay siege, you surround a city and you cut off all essential supplies so that you can compel the people within to surrender. This can get really bad really fast. Surrounding a city is a war of attrition. It's to see who can outlast, those on the outside or those on the inside. Those on the outside of the city, the, the enemy attacking the city, would be well-stocked. They would have fresh shipments brought in. They would have doctors carted in if they needed it. They, they would have fresh food brought in. They had fresh things. But the reality on the outside was very different. On the inside, On the inside, they only had the essentials they started with. And then they could only continue on with the essentials that they could forage or grow or find or somehow refresh. And if there was no water source, historically, we've read about these sieges, they last mere days. A city without a water source just cannot last. Oftentimes, a city would have one for this very purpose. And then it came down to food. And you would ration the food, and the food would dwindle. And there's all these accounts throughout history about what they would do to try to to, to, to make it last longer is they're eating leather. They'd soak the the wood in in water and soften it up and eat that. They're eating everything they can eat. Anything. On the inside, disease was also an issue as the walls of the city would, would build up the waste and the hygiene suffered. Siege actually comes from Latin. It means to sit because you circle a city and you sit. And those inside get circled, and they sit, and it's just to see who can sit longer. One side is often suffering, while the other side is often just waiting. 
They're terrible for the people inside. In fact, they're so terrible that today a siege can violate the international war crime laws because of the damage it does to civilians and children especially. Everyone suffers. Sieging has evolved, and now we have a diplomatic siege called sanctions. Sanctioning is just a siege. We're going to cut you off from essential trade and see how long it can last. So we still have siege these days. It just looks different. But... During the siege of 2 Kings, as we're going to see, the people become desperate inside. Desperation begins to form. And in their desperation, they find themselves doing things they would never do otherwise. So the king of Aram has attacked the northern kingdom of Israel. He's laid siege to the capital. He's surrounded it. He's cut it off from all essentials. In verse 25, it says, There was a great famine in the city. The siege lasted so long that a donkey's head sold for 80 shekels of silver and a quarter of a cab of seed pods for five shekels. What they're saying there is the most unsavory food is the most expensive. Just a handful of seed pods would cost many wages. And the head of a donkey, the part you do not eat, was an exorbitant amount of money. Do you see what that means they've already eaten? They've eaten everything else. There are no pets on a besieged city. There's no livestock left. There's no horses. There's nothing left. They eat everything they can to just try to outlast the siege, but it gets worse, and I'm going to try to, it gets worse. As the king of Israel was passing by on the wall, a woman cried up to me, help me, my king. And I want to temper this next part because I never know who's in here, but it's truly horrifying You see, they've gotten so desperate for food, eating all the leather and the grass and anything they could eat. And in their desperation, it has led them to depravity. Desperation often leads to depravity. The woman in this verse reveals, she goes on to reveal, that her and her neighbor, the two families, had agreed to consume their youngest children. And she had kept her into the bargain, but the other lady had not. Do you see, I only say this to see the level of desperation they're living in. Do you see the desperation that it leads to depravity? Desperation will lead you to places you never thought you would go. That's true in all of life. When you have to have something and you can't find it and you're desperate, you'll almost do anything for it. You'll do things you never thought you would do for it. The king hears this news and he he tears his cloak in in just brokenness. So we have Ben-Hadad, the attacking king and his army surrounding. We have Samaria, the Hebrew capital, surrounded, besieged, and desperate. And we find in chapter 7, we turn over to chapter 7, we find four more people in this story. Unlikely people. Verse 3 of chapter 7. Now there were four men with leprosy at the entrance of the city gate. Leprosy. We've talked about leprosy. Let me refresh you really quickly. Leprosy is a disease that strikes you physically, but also strikes you in every other area of your life. It's a wasting disease of the skins and and the nerves especially, but it has more to do with what it does to you socially and relationally than what it just does to you physically. You see, you were deemed unclean if you had leprosy. That's why they're at the city gate. They can't really go into the city. If they get around people, they have to yell, unclean, unclean. If you were, during this time, if you were at your house and you saw a patch of skin that looked um, suspect, you would be shot with a jolt of adrenaline. Oh, no. And you would go show the priest. And it could be eczema, it could be something else, but if they found that it was leprosy, you did not go back home and tell your family. You didn't go home and kiss your kids. You didn't go home and hug your bride or your husband. They took you right from that spot and they took you outside the city, and you could never worship in the temple again. 
You can never hold your children again. You couldn't hold your beloved. Your life would change like that. You were an outcast. Because of the nature of it, they, you would pass it on. You, wouldn't wanna, you would want to hold your kids, but you would not want to even touch them, get near them, lest they get it. You can see how that would just transform someone's entire life. It was a death sentence. It stole everything from you. And these men, these four men, the city's under siege, but their whole life has been under siege from this diagnosis. All good things have been withheld from them. And so here they are, stuck between the besieged city, a powerful army, at the gate, just waiting. Like you think it's bad, and they, and they have even less out here. They're stuck between a rock and a hard place. What do we do? And so it says in verse 3, we'll go back and read, there were four men with leprosy at the entrance of the city gate, and they say to each other, why stay here until we die? I mean, if we say let's go to the city, there's a famine in there, and we'll surely die if we go in there. If we stay here at the entrance, we're going to die. So let's go over to the enemy camp of the Arameans and surrender. Because if they spare us, they might have pity on us. They might give us a, a bite. But if they do kill us, it'll be swift. Like, talk about uh, options. They're like, if we go in there, we die slowly. We stay here, we die slowly. If we go out there, we either eat or die quickly. I, I vote for the dying quickly or the eating. Either of those options is better than what we're doing. They are completely trapped in this moment. Desperate men making desperate decisions. So at dusk, they went out to the camp of the Arameans. Now, this is amazing. It's a little ways off. They can't see it when they first go, maybe. And as they start to walk toward the camp, they're nervous. This could be their last walk alive. This could be their last minute alive. They could get shot full of arrows as soon as they get in sight. They don't know. The odds are this will not go well. But as they get closer, they don't hear the clamor of an army. They don't hear any ringing anvils. They don't hear men yelling and laughing. It's at dusk. There should be fires, and fire pits mean men sitting around them. And they don't hear any laughter. They hear nothing. They hear some jingle or maybe some, some, some animals and some horses neighing. As they get closer, they, they see campfires. They see fire pits. They see movement of animals, but they see no people. And as they cautiously now strangely walk forward, they find that there is no one in this camp. Not a soul, not a person at all. There's animals, there's, there's gold and silver, and there's food prepared, there's stew on the fire, bubbling. But there's no people. Can you imagine this moment, the shock? This, I mean, they imagined a lot of things could happen. They did not imagine this. Now, what they don't know is that God had caused the enemy to flee for their lives and leave everything. They're just showing up. God has already moved and the army is gone. And it says in verse 10, they entered the first tent and they ate and they drank. They just go in there and they find that identity more or whatever the people are camping with and they just start gorging themselves on this food. They eat like they have never eaten. They, they have probably have not eaten in a long time and it's amazing to me that four lepers are eating better than the king just over the hill. They're eating as much as they can. But then they make a decision in verse 8. The men who had leprosy reached the edge of camp, entered one of the tents, ate and drank. Then they took the silver, the gold, and the clothes, and they went off and hid them. They're like, well, while we're here, look at that. Oh, that scabbard is amazing. There's some gold coins. Look at this. I'm getting a new cloak. I'm getting new shoes. I'm getting new everything. And they walk out of there looking like generals. 
You know, they got the ranks on their arms. They, they're full. They have anything. And, they're, and they're just, their pockets, they might have loaded up a donkey. They have all this stuff. And they load it up and they go and they hide it. And they know where to hide because they can't live in the city. Perhaps they know they have a place where they go. They have a cave. Who knows? They take it somewhere and they hide it and they unload it. Oh my gosh, can you believe it? Should, should we go back? Should we do it again? What if the army returns? Let's just go check it out. So now they, they, they go back. And it says this, it says they returned, entered another tent, and took some things from it and hid it also. Like they're just gonna go around the whole siege circle. Boom, hitting one after another, just picking it clean, taking it away, and hiding it, and hoarding it. These men who found food and salvation in the siege, what are they doing with it? There's a starving city over the hill. There's a city eating itself over the hill. There are desperate people making desperate decisions and they're loading it up and they're putting it on horses and donkeys and they're hiding all of it. In verse nine, they come to their senses and they said to each other, and we have this up on the screen, they said to each other, what we're doing is not right. This is a day of good news and we are keeping it to ourselves. A day of what? Gospel. This is a day of good news. What we're doing isn't right. Like I can see them in the middle of it. What we're doing isn't right. Now why would they think that? The city's abandoned them. The city's turned their back on them. My wife and kids are still in there. My friends are still in there. My coworkers. What we're doing is not right. There's a city in there living in desperation. What they should have done, what these men should have done when they found the city the way they found it, grab a turkey leg and eat it as you run back to the city. As you're running to the city, eat your turkey leg, eat your stuff. But when you get back there, go yell to the guards, stop, everyone, stop what you're doing. Everyone freeze. Whatever bad decision you were about to make out of desperation, don't make it. I've found life. I've found something that will change everything for you. Just stop. Don't make that decision. I have the answer. If you will just follow me, I will show you where life is. Come, follow me. Put down what you're doing. Put down what you were about to do. You don't want to do that anymore. Come with me. I have life. That's what they should have done. They hid it. They hoarded it. Then they came to their senses and went and told the city. Now, Orchard, our world is depraved. I don't know if I need to convince you of that. <laughs> like, our world has a lot of issues. And our world is in desperation. Anytime a person tries to find their identity in anything temporary or worldly, instead of eternal and divine, desperation will follow. See, in, G in Jesus, we have eternal and supernatural purpose. Apart from Jesus, we have to settle for temporary and natural purpose. And I don't have time to go into all the different ways that any identity misplaced in work or being pretty or being capable or being wealthy or healthy or addiction will lead to desperation because the bottom line is this. Our eternal soul was meant to be fueled and filled and find its identity in an eternal source. See, we have, our soul has an infinite need and we're trying to give it fixes of finite resources in the world. And they always dry up. If it's a relationship, that person will never be infinitely what you need them to be. No relationship will ever feed your infinite need. No, no addiction will ever feed your infinite. Everything in the world is a fix for an unlimited, infinite, eternal need. 
but there is an eternal, unlimited resource out there. And if you don't find the eternal, unlimited resource, you will be led to desperation because your fixes, you'll go from fix to fix to fix and there will, have, there will be a drying up and you'll have to find another one. Someone else has to like me. I need more affection. I need another fix of this. I need more success. Things are failing. I need more. We, will, we, ha- we go from one to the next until we finally find out that our infinite need needs an infinite resource. The world is in desperation if our identity is found in finite fixes. Which leads this world to be desperate. And we see this. We see it in ourselves in times. We definitely see it in other people as we see them making desperate decisions, making decisions about relationships or work or addiction, whatever it would be. We see people making decisions out of desperation. They thought their unlimited need would be filled, and it hasn't been. So they make decisions out of desperation. But, but so at some point, some of us, those of us who, who say we follow Jesus and know Jesus, we heard the gospel, we heard the good news, and we made a decision to follow him with our life. And in doing that, you found life. You found salvation. You found redemption. And when we found this salvation, what we discovered is that what comes with salvation is some riches. Now, I wish I could tell you it's lottery riches, but there's different riches that are more priceless than that that come with the salvation. A wealth of priceless virtue, an unlimited supply of peace, a greater um, capacity for love, a never-ending hope. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control, eternal life. There are benefits of the gospel, and these are the riches of the good news. And what did we do with this? When we found life, and we found these resources and these riches, what did we do with the greatest gift that we found? You know, for many of us, we gorged on it. We loaded it up. We went back to our life. And we hid it. We hid it. We hid it from a world that is living in desperation, that needs the very things that we have. Like the lepers, we even make multiple trips. Every Sunday, I go up and I fill up on the joy and the celebration. Every growth group, I go fill up on authentic community. Every deep conversation with my brothers or my sisters, I refill on on what it means to be forgiving and graceful and loving. And I hide that and, and and I hoard it. We have found a life that the world is desperate for. And I just want to remind us that Jesus and his good news isn't an addition to our life. It is life. The gospel is life. In 2 Kings, we find the account of four people who take life back to those who need it most. They do take it back to the people who need it most and hopeless people become hopeful again and they didn't have to make decisions out of desperation anymore. And so we get to take life to those who need it most around us so they don't have to make decisions out of desperation anymore. Because you see at some point in your life you get to stop making decisions out of desperation and start making them out of salvation. And at some point you get to start making decisions for redemption 
as you find yourself more and more fueled and resourced by God's divine power. If you are here and claim to be a follower of Jesus, whether it was last week or whether it was 40 years ago, you have the good news. And I just want to ask you, I had to ask myself this all week, am I hiding it? Are you hiding it? Are you hoarding it? Or are you offering it to those in need? To that friend who has anxiety and you would say, listen, I know you're struggling with a lot of anxiety. Can I just tell you the only thing I have found that can ever give me the peace that I need? For the person who's lonely, hey, come join me. You, you, I have a group I'd love you to come meet. They're great people. Just come, come, come taste true community. To those you see down roads that you may have been in loss or loneliness or addiction, hey, let me just tell you what I found. It's, you're the le- come follow me. I've found something. However you would communicate that to them. You know them. Say that. Orchard, we've been given a divine privilege. We've been given a divine responsibility to go and take life to a world that needs it. We are called to love God and love people. Do we love them enough to speak on what we know, to act upon what we know, to live upon what we know, to take it out of hiding, to take the riches that we have found that were never meant to be held. God didn't give you grace to hoard it. He gave you grace to give it because guess what? He's always gonna give you more. And I've found when it comes to God's kingdom, the more I give away, we talk about this, Charlie, the more we give away, the more God gives. We are not called to be a people who hide our faith at our houses and who uncover it once a week in these four walls. The riches that we find and the benefits and the life and the hope and the peace that we find from God's kingdom, we are called to go bring out to others. Invite others into it. Come, follow me. I'm gonna tell you two stories, no names, no real details because we're gonna hear more about them later. But, but just in the past month, there was somebody who brought, brought some friends to the church. They didn't know Jesus. They didn't know the good news. He did. He invited them into it. And during the service, near the end of it, they started talking. And he asked them. He started explaining some things about communion. He said, do you want to receive Jesus? And they did. Right here in this room. This, that's good news. This year, there was a man who brought a friend with his, um, and they came to church, and the man came for a while, and he kind of he watched what we did, and he listened to our sermons. And after weeks of doing this, out in the parking lot, they talked about it, and he led his friend to Christ. He said, come, come with me. Come check out this thing. And then what did you think? Like, he invited them in to a life. Orchard, that, we're called to be a part of this. We are called to get in the flow of changing this, this entire region. We are going to have, as we've let following Charlie's lead to have two services and his leadership and what it means for this region. We are not starting another 830, we're not starting 830 service just so that um, we'll have more room. And I just want to let you know a little industry secret. When we have two services and let's say the eight o'clock has a lot more open seats and this one has more open seats, people aren't going to flock to church just because there's open seats. Hey, did you hear about the orchard? They have more room. Everybody, let's go. I hear there's more room in there. Come on. I can't wait to tithe. Like, that doesn't happen. <laughs> it does in my dreams. I just, God, they would hear we have more room. 
we are making more room in this room, and look at the, seat, the seats that will be next to you open and empty. You might be relying on us to fill them, but it could very well be that the seats nearest to you are for the people that live nearest to you and work nearest to you and are nearest to you in your life as you say, come, follow me. I know where life is. Hey, man, come check it out. You know, just, just come with me, come visit. Um, that is for you, and you might have the divine moment there's nothing like it as you maybe stand up there next to the baptismal as someone reads their testimony and it's somebody who you talked to, you invited, and you maybe prayed with and they get baptized as they've given their life to Jesus. When it's good news, we share it. How good is your good news? You, me, us, we have... We have been called. Orchard, we are called to something. We are excited. I don't know if you could catch the excitement last week with the confetti that a few of us cleaned up for hours. It was worth it, though. It was awesome. I missed that. You missed it. But let me just tell you something. God is going to move in power. He is moving in power. But it's not just like I hope the staff and the pastors are going to move in power and the parking lot team and the greeters when they, you know, and this and that. We are the church. I want to remind us of something here today. Jesus ascended into heaven and left the mission of Christ with the church. Is the church a building? No. He didn't leave the mission of Jesus to a box with seats and sometimes their pews without cushions. He would never do that. He left the mission of Christ to us. We, the people of Jesus, are the church. So when we leave this building, we, the church, go out and we get to be the church. Orchard, today's sermon is simply this. We have, some of us have found life. Let us not be those who hoard it. Let us not be those who hide it. Let us be people who boldly, empowered by the Spirit, just simply go out and speak of it and share it and act on it and live it and invite people into it. Say, come follow me. It's a desperate world out there, but I have found life. And as we go into communion today, communion, uh, this is the symbol of the blood and the body of Jesus Christ broken for us that gives us this covenant. If we did not have this, if we did not have the death of Jesus and his resurrection, there would be no life to draw people to. And so as you come and you get communion and you hold the body and the blood in your hands, the, the juice, would you start by just thanking Jesus and if you're like me and as you, you've heard this and you think about it and you go, it's, it's not been good news to me lately. It's been old news. Jesus, I want your death and resurrection to be good news to me again. And if, give me more passion. Give me more fervor. Speak to me. Draw me. Forgive me. Cleanse me. And as you take communion, I want you to begin to think, who are the people in your life that are desperate? They're making desperate decisions because of it. And you, you've found life. Maybe it's time that we begin to invite people into that life and speak it forth. And so Jesus, we thank you. We thank you that you are so great and so good. Jesus, I pray, if I could ask one thing, I pray that your spirit would begin to reveal to us today just how good the news is, how transformative that you died for us. And if there are any of you in here today who have not made the decision to follow Jesus in this good news, you are invited to come talk to myself or Charlie or one of the other pastors or, or, or a growth group leader. We would love to pray with you about that.
The front is open for prayer. Communion is open. Let's worship. Let's hear from the Spirit.